I'd like to invite you all to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verse just a moment we'll read God's holy word from 2 Corinthians 8.1. I just want to make a brief introductory comment about our text this morning by referencing another text of Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us of the human condition when he writes in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? And the Lord says that He searches the heart and tests the mind, that He knows. But amongst us, who can understand the heart? The heart, the, in, the inner part of a man. Who understands himself? The heart is desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 is a verse that speaks to us in a way that in our more self-aware moments we realize how much we lack our own self-awareness. I know when I'm more sober-minded, more aware of myself, I realize the work yet to be done. And I realize that even though God has regenerated me in the inside, I realize that the heart is in need of entire sanctification, to be matched with a glorified body in glory. And I realize especially the depths from which God has brought me and must bring me if indeed I am to persevere to the end. And when I think of my heart, I think that I can speak for all of us that we have hearts that need God's touch. And too often we are not living self-aware of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And we need help to be able to analyze and assess ourselves and know ourselves. In fact, Part of knowing God is, over time, knowing ourselves. As we begin to know God more and more, we start to understand ourselves better because we understand the doctrine of man or ourselves in light of who God is and the doctrine of God. We can compare and contrast the communicable attributes of God with our attributes and see how woefully short we fall. But it's not an exact science for us because we do see through a glass dimly, and we are at times deceived about ourselves. And what I want to offer you this morning in reference to the Scriptures that have already been read is that God has, in fact, offered a built-in indicator to help us solve this dilemma about being deceived from our hearts and self-deceived. And it is an indicator test that is helpful and God-given about where our heart lies. And this indicator test is found very explicitly in the Bible. An indicator test can be very, very helpful in our lives. 
Think about your car. You have problems in your car, and you can get a light to pop up, and it'll be, be an indication that something in the car is off. And if not addressed, will go really badly. Perhaps you're that person that's had a light come on, and you've tried to ignore it and ignore it and ignore it, and eventually the car wouldn't let you ignore it anymore because it, whatever the problem was, came to fruition, you were done. Now, certainly we can have false indicators, right, inside of the car. We can have indication lights that aren't telling you anything more than the weather changed and your tire pressure changed. But on the main, those indicators are for the good of your understanding of the health of your vehicle, right? That's what they're there for. And if they weren't somewhat successful, we wouldn't keep having cars with indicator light systems inside of them. And we wouldn't have to go and pay money in order to get those lights turned off whenever they come on, because otherwise they just stay on until you deal with them. Indicator lights are helpful. You think of the indication of your body. That's the reason why we run tests whenever we're ill. And there's tests ran to try to give indication as to what's going on inside of us that might be producing a certain outcome. But that's the, that's the sense for our topic within our text today. And the Bible says, not only in Jeremiah 17, that our hearts are, are deceitful and we can live unaware but God knows. It also says that there's an indicator to where our hearts lie, and it's like this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That verse, we want to catch it and come back to it today because it overlays with our text so beautifully well with the Apostle Paul's concern that the believers at Corinth would be found having their treasure in a place that revealed that their hearts were healthy toward Christ. So think on that verse today, even as we look at these other verses. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is my treasure? That's the shaping question for me as I read this text today. Where is my treasure? Because it is a, a as a light is an indicator light is to the health of my car, so is where my treasure, where my resources are being expended, an indicator light to my heart. And friends, it is a grace from God for you to have indications toward your inner part and your health. It's not, you don't just want to stick your fingers in your ear and be like, I don't want to know about it, I don't want to know. That, that's a recipe for really bad, bad stuff, isn't it? You want to know. It's God's grace on you to know where your heart is. So we're in this together today as we turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and we look for indicators to our heart by virtue of how our treasure goes out, how our resources goes out, the resources that God has entrusted to us. And really this forms kind of a three-week mini-series within 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that is about this grace of giving. So without further ado, let's hear the first installment of this from the text of 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves 
first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness equity, fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and who gathered, whoever gathered little had no lack. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. Let's consider the context of this text for a moment. The Apostle Paul is writing this now, a fourth letter, the second in your biblical canon that's kept for you today, to the Corinthian church. He is giving church marching orders to the church at the behest of his Lord Christ. And we learn how to be a church by reading the letters that were written for the early churches, not the least of which, of course, is the letters to Corinth. We have preached expositionally, consecutively, through 1st and now 2nd Corinthians to this point in chapter 8. And you might remember in 1st Corinthians chapter 16, the introduction to that chapter, the very last chapter of 1st Corinthians, is that when the believers gathered on the first day of the week, they were to give a sum of money in keeping with their income. Henceforth, the practice that we carry forward today of during our worship service we give an opportunity for people to give a sum of money in keeping with their income. Now that phrase most assuredly harkens back to the old covenant ideal of tithing, of giving a tenth part of our income back to the Lord because it all belongs to Him. King David told us so in Second Chronicles. Everything belongs to the Lord. And Abraham, that ancient patriarch of ours from over 4,000 years ago, modeled tithing by giving a tenth of his spoils of what he had back to the priestly figure Melchizedek, who many believe is a sort of a type of Christ. And you can read about that in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And so we have this concept from the Scripture, this principle, that God's people have a, a, a baseline illustration, if, if not command, at least illustration for us, to be those that give back a sum of money in keeping with our income that has been historically understood biblically and theologically to be a tithe. Now, in the New Covenant, 
we have been shown such grace that we shouldn't be strapped by a certain percentage, should we? I mean, we should be excited to give, but often we're not, but we should be excited to give. I'm moved by the, the, uh, the Presbyterian Churches of America, the PCA. They have what I've read about is called the 11% challenge. And what they say to people is to try to get them thinking graciously about giving. And giving is an act of grace. As they say, if you are already a tither, would you consider one more percent? So if a tithe for you was, I'm just pulling numbers out of the air, was, was $5,000 a year, would you give another 500 to help a missionary somewhere to help that missionary and then go to 11%? I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air. Your tithe may be $50 a year. It may be much more than that. It's according to your means. I don't know what your means are. I haven't done background research to know what you make every year. And uh, furthermore, I, I, I don't know what you give because we have, we have treasures that take care of that. And I don't, I don't want to be open to the charge of favoritism so that I would treat you differently than you and you differently than you if I knew what you gave. And so frankly, I can really preach with a, a lot of openness about this subject because of the fact I don't really know what you give. And I kind of find that free, freeing for me. I don't know that it would be sinful if I did know. Um, but, I, but I don't. And, and so when I come to a text like today, there's no pretense within that. But back to the PCA, what I think that they do is interesting, is they just try to get people thinking, not about the restrictions of the tithe, or I could never get there, or that's all I could ever do, but what does it look like to do something that is this plus a little more that stretches me a little bit? Now, some of us need to hear that this morning. Some that have been long-term tithers, and in kind of a slavish fashion, you know it served you well. You've learned to live on 90%, and it served you well. It's built in kind of a, a, a way of life that gets you thinking about the gospel by the way that you manage your income. But maybe a slight stretch goal might be important for you. And I would advocate uh, that you consider missions in that. For example, uh, in this text, we're talking about the Gentile believers looking to the Jewish church and realizing that because of crippling taxes... And because of the fact that that church there was going through a famine, they needed relief in the most strong possible way. And so Apostle Paul was trying to get folks to see sacrificial giving from these western churches to the east to help the Jewish church with their relief. And he actually gives them this encouragement to give, to help, to get them to see a bigger picture and to help, not necessarily to bring absolute equanimity between every single church everywhere. If that were the case, he would have took the rich Corinthians and said, you also got to give more money to the, to the Macedonians because they don't have as much money as you have. This wasn't a kind of flat, just leveling everything out. It was a, those people are really in need, and you need to dig down deep and see if you can sacrifice a little bit of your comfort to help them out. And so there's, there's that. So I, I like what the PCA does with regard to that, and I want to mention it. Uh, this morning. Let me tell you how I think we can take this text that would be helpful. I think we can take it on three parts as we reflect on this, this context of this text where the Apostle Paul's offering this admonition to the repentant, now obedient church at Corinth, and thus to us. I think we can look at the first five verses and see how other churches, like the Macedonian churches did to the Corinthians, we can see how they can, can inform our church's giving. And then secondly, we can look at verses 6 through 11, and we can think about how other members within our own church can inform 
our own giving or my own giving. And then finally, we can consider in verses 12 through 15, based on biblical precept, what should my level of giving be next? What should it be? Because for some of us, it's just very simply giving anything will be a, be a start toward participating in this grace of giving. Now, before I preach those three points, looking at other churches, looking within our own church, and looking within ourselves, before I preach that, I want to say something to you this morning. I've already said, I don't know what it is that you give. I've already said that. I also want to say to you this morning that I have made the mistake in preaching uh, sermons on this particular topic, many series and whatnot over the years, of doing uh, sort of challenges and what I now consider gimmicky ways of preaching about drumming up giving. And I just want you to know that I, I don't subscribe to that any longer. I don't think that that's helpful, and I stand corrected for any way and repent of any way in which I've preached in that way in the past. I don't want you to prove the tithe. I don't want to give you a money-back guarantee. I don't, th- this is about theology. It's about God. This is about grace. It's not, about, it's not even about the budget. The budget will take care of itself. It will be adjusted toward the faithfulness of the members. All I'm asking is, where's your heart? That's it. That's all I'm asking. And I figured that the Lord knows how to take care of everything else. Don't you? So three points. The first one is verses 1 through 5. And we're going to look at how other churches out there can inform our church's giving here. I've already mentioned the PCA and their 1% challenge beyond the the 10%. Let's review these first five verses and see what we can kind of glean from it for our helps. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. It must have been, just pause right there, it must have been okay to share testimonies about giving. See, this wasn't all hush-hush and secret, was it? It it must have been okay to talk about this subject. It wasn't uncouth to discuss giving, or we wouldn't be discussing it right here in the text. I want you to know. We want you to know. I mean, it's a topic of conversation in the church. They gave according to their means normally, it seems, but in this instance, they gave beyond their means. They were quite generous. They had seen a need, and they were wanting to meet that need. Talking of the church in Macedonia... This is the Corinthian church being informed about the churches in Macedonia. The Thessalonians, the Philippians, they're being informed about the generosity of those churches. Now, this was not to become a hobby horse of the apostle, let alone the preacher. And yet, it's also not a banned subject. This is not on the banned chapters from the Bible list. It's an important subject because of the indication of our heart, the indicator of our heart that where our treasure goes is. These church members are asked, actually they're requested, in fact they're kind of begged to take part in this act of giving. That they would feel aware of it and move toward it to take part in it. That they shouldn't be left out of this grace of giving. They were to feel like they were a part of the larger body of Christ by engaging in this grace of giving. They had nerve endings and indicators and they could feel, and so they would respond as we are to respond to an appeal like this is not to be left out. There's a sensitivity as we grow in Christ, a sensitivity by which we first give ourselves to the Lord because He has awakened us inside, 
But our giving of ourselves doesn't stop at the Lord. It's giving of ourselves to the Lord and to His people. For the Lord has purchased for Himself a people at great personal cost. He has bought us at a price, Romans says. Ponder the, the, the value that has been placed on your salvation. The value that's been placed on your life. He shed His own blood for your soul. Oughtn't we to at least examine it this morning? There's a sensitivity because of God's grace that we can have and, and, and there is an openness to this topic that we can embrace not as strictly working to attain something as if we could attain something more than what we've already received. The book of Corinthians says, what do you have that you haven't received? Rather, the examination is because we want to be further and further encouraged in our faith by being a part of the body of Christ global, the church universal. Our giving of ourselves doesn't stop at the Lord. It extends to His people that we have the privilege to be a part of. What an attitudinal shift from how we would think of giving if only in the flesh. If there were no spiritual component to giving. This is an attitudinal shift from just thinking of giving as only in the flesh. Because this attitudinal shift means that now we are a part of a network of believers that's not just a network for the purpose of personal gain and economy. We are a part of a network of believers that Christ has purchased with His own blood, and that network of believers called the church will exist in perpetuity for all time. When you invest in God's people, materially or spiritually, you are giving and receiving within the body of Christ that will live forever. And so these first five verses takes the taboo that the enemy has put on the subject of our finances and put, brought it, it's brought it back into play. And it's done it by getting us to look at the grace that other churches out there where they've been generous has given us a testimony for how we might be generous as well and participate in the relief of other believers, the relief of the saints. Look at verse 2. For in severe tests of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Talking about the Macedonians, relatively poor people. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. They gave based on their means. And the apostle could testify, they also gave beyond their means in this instance. Of their own accord, they, 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 they did this. Really, it says here in verse 4, they were begging the apostles and the apostolic associates like Titus earnestly for the grace or favor of taking part. They had this, this FOMO, this fear of missing out on giving. I mean, it's crazy, right? Like the millennials, we have this, this fear of missing out concept. I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on something. The spirituality of the Macedonians had accelerated to the point that they had a fear of missing out on giving to help with the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who had spiritually endowed them with so much already. Think about it. Our Savior is a Jew. And so they're begging, I want to help. And it's almost probably Paul was almost blushing like, you people in Macedonia, you don't have much to give. I mean, like, 
you, you, don't, you don't have two wooden nickels to rub together. What are you doing trying to help the people in Jerusalem? And, and it's almost like it was, it was instructional for, for the apostles too. Because it's not what they expected, verse 5 says. Because the Macedonians gave themselves by God's will, not just in salvation to the Lord as the Lord had changed them, but they began to have the blinders off and see their self-giving to the rest of the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing for me and for you. As you grow in your faith, the Lord opens your eyes to see the church universal and to see the needs. We've perhaps never been better situated in the history of the church to see the needs globally than we are right now. With the advent of social media and with the advent of just the internet simply, we get reports and it's beautiful. You know, I get reports from our missionaries in Dubai and in Africa and in Turkey and I'm both encouraged and challenged by those reports. One of the things I need to do is a better job of communicating those reports to you as members. And I've been through studying for these sermons. I've been convicted by that. And there's some things in the works to try to be more communicating with you about those missionaries and those, the needs of relief for the saints. We could do a better job of communicating. So this is just my big repentance hour, I guess. This whole hour, I'm just here to tell you everything I've ever done wrong, I guess. I'm just blabbing this morning about repentance. So please forgive me. You know, I, but I want to do a better job of that. Uh, because I think the text has driven me to that, and perhaps for your benefit as well, so that even if we've only got two wooden nickels to rub together, one of them can get sent to the relief of, and they're saying Jerusalem, the Jewish saints, but, but wherever the saints need relief in the global body of Christ today, where well, we would be helpful, mission-minded. i got to tell you, other churches have inspired me this way. We can share in the, the helping of other believers in other parts of the world according to what our means are, not what someone else's standard of living is. And i, I got to say this before I move on to the second point. I find our family worship time at home is richer when we talk about a missionary. It, it just is. Like it, because there's something about taking the blinders off and seeing beyond just my immediate needs or even just our church family's needs, which is enough to fill up the docket of things to talk about in prayer, isn't it? I mean, just pray through the church directory. You're going to see enough. Pray for the sick and afflicted. Pray for the people you want to see born again. But there needs to be that component where the Macedonians teach us to look all the way over to Jerusalem, doesn't there? Point number one, I want you to be informed. You're giving to be informed by other churches' faithfulness in the past, like the Macedonians, and in the present. Churches you know of that are faithful. And we should pray for those churches, and we should not miss out on the will of God for us to participate in that act of giving. Number two, Verses 6 through 11, let's see how members within our own body can inform our own giving. My own, how can you inform my giving? Listen to verses 6 through 11. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Notice they're calling giving grace, a grace act. Verse 7. As you excel in everything, and he commends them, you excel in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, your love for us and excelling in love, see that you also excel or, or do more than just enough is another way of saying excel in this act of grace also. Do more than just get by. Do more than just enough would be a fair also rendering of excel there from the Greek. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. It's so beautiful. because He's like, I need this to be from your heart. Right? I need you to look at your heart. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a command for you to give over and above. I'm not talking about that. He's saying, I say this to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. The love, the affection of your heart. 
is genuine, that you have in, in mind eternity and not just the present. Verse 9, for you know the grace, boy, he did, now he goes to Jesus, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and he's talking about in heaven, right? He condescended, he left his, his abode and made home with us. For your sake, it says, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Isn't it beautiful, right? It's beautiful theology. It's true. And in this matter, I will give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. A year ago, they must have started giving to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, and they got sidetracked for, by lots of other issues in the church. And now he's calling them to finish it. Verse 11 says, So now finish doing it as well. Finish what you started, so that your readiness in desiring it to start it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, isn't that always the problem with we human beings? It's always the problem is we're always starting noble projects and we're never finishing them, right? I mean, it's the exception to the rule. When we finish something, we've started. And Abraham Lincoln famously said, A job half finished is wasted energy. Well, there's a precept there, but there's also the precept of a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. So, I mean, which one are you? Are you the person that starts the journey and doesn't finish it? Or are you the person that's always so busy finishing journeys that you never started it? I don't know. But I thank God that we kind of have different personalities in the church. We don't kind of, we do have. And furthermore, we have different spiritual giftings within the church. And so some of you, you know, when we have a missionary come or, or whatnot, you're the first to be like, we got to support that missionary. We have got to put our money where our mouth is. we got to help them people. Them people need our help. And there's other of you sitting back there and you're counting the costs and you're going, okay, how are we going to finish this in a year? Like, what's this going to look like to finish that thing? And then some of you are like, I don't care. we got to do something. And, and others are like, well, what does this look like for us to be finishers? And I want to tell you that both of those personality types and the, the motivational gifts therein are, I believe, important to the body of Christ. Because Jesus, who has all the gifts, is both a starter and a finisher. He not only incarnately came down to earth, condescending his humble abode to get involved in our mess from richness to poverty, but he said on the cross at Calvary, it is finished. Starter and finisher. But we of our own accord, none of us are Christ. We are his body learning to live in likeness of Christ, and we need each other to do that. So we need excited starters, and we need finishers, and some of you starters need to discipline yourself to finish, and some of you finishers need to take a risk for once. We need to work together so that we can be the type of people as a body looking one to another that can inform and inspire other members' giving. We need to not just settle for enough, but we need to be about the more than enough. We don't just need to do okay. We need to do more than okay. It says in this text that we don't just do enough, but we do more than enough. That we are the type of people that are looking to be taking a part of generosity because we see it as grace and because we see how Christ never just did just enough just to get done with the thing. He did exactly what was needed, and He gave us grace upon grace and is generous to us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He finished your salvation before you even started living your salvation. Think about that for a minute. That's why 2 Corinthians 8 can say here, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Rich or poor? 
can you find in your heart a sense of Christ's likeness to be generous? And you be a generous person. Now, I've talking, I'm talking this morning about different types of people within the church here. Different, we, have different, we have different places where we are. We, there are some here that are closer to the Jewish believers that were going through a famine. And I want you to know that there is a time in a church where you are the receivers and not the massive givers of gifts. I got to say that that's not all of us, though, but it's some. And if it is you, I hope that we have the ability to see the spiritual benefit you bring to the church when you don't, at this time, provide to the material benefit of the church. Because that's what this text is saying. It's saying about the Corinthian believers you should meet their material needs because spiritual's bigger and they met your spiritual needs. We need to begin to to topsy-turvy that and see our hearts and make sure that when we're helping those among us that are not yet able to be a part of the material givings, or maybe because of their setting life, maybe they're never able to be a part. We need to see them as a very vital part of the body of Christ because of the spiritual benefit they bring, especially those that struggle with mental aptitude over the course of their lives because they bring spiritual benefits to the church. Listen, friends, we are not, this is not a dystopian novel, and we are not utilitarians. This is not John Stuart Mill 2.0. We do not do transactional relationships with people. We love people regardless of whether or not they can give us anything. We've got to stop channeling our missions to try to get something out of people. We've got to stop channeling our generosity to try to curry favor in the network of American economy. Folks, this is about Jesus who left the best economy ever known to man to come fix your sin situation. So look to the the more faithful among us in this area and imitate their giving. Other members in the church can help us. I am encouraged, so encouraged in the body of Christ by the, the, um, the, the junior high Sunday school class in this church. Let me just brag on them for a minute. They don't have an income, so they're having to be borrowing from you. They're probably begging you for your quarters and stuff. But they're trying, they know that the parking lot needs resurfaced. And so within their means, they're bringing quarters to the junior high Sunday school class. And Miss Beverly and Mr. Norris, when certain amounts of quarters add up to a certain amount of money, they put an elephant on the wall to say, well, we got to that part, that we got to that point, to that point. And they've even kind of gotten to the point where the elephants have, have marked progress to the point that the kids have been like, hey, when I get older and I go to college, can I have one of them elephants? I want one of them in my dorm room. I mean, this has become a thing where the, the elephants... They're going to be around for a very, very long time. And it'll be a reminder, you know, they'll drive on the parking lot and think of elephants. I don't know if they want a strong enough parking lot, the elephants wouldn't break it down. I don't really know the logic behind the elephants. But I'm saying what they're doing is they're trying to do something beyond themselves to help something that they believe is a benefit to the body of Christ. Now, certainly that could, we could discuss how that should be also thought of toward missions and relief of the saints. But the impulse to be generous to something that they see I think is noble and something worth thinking about. Sometimes we think, we think in terms of if we can't meet the whole thing, then we shouldn't participate. Let me tell you a story. I coach basketball. Uh, I've been coaching basketball my whole adult life after I stopped playing. But I, I coach basketball for girls because, well, I have girls. That's what I coach is girls because I've got daughters. Otherwise, I'd coach boys, probably if I had boys. But there's this little girl, and I'll just call her Jill. That's not her name, but she's eight. 
And she plays on a team that I help with. I've done skills camp for these kids and whatnot. She plays on a team that I help with. And this little girl named Jill is really not able to contribute in a big way to the team right now. But I've watched this girl, and, and what I've noticed, because she's not fully developed yet in terms of size, obviously, even for her age, she's not really all that big. I've noticed as well with, whether she's not strong enough to get the ball all the way over the rim yet at the size that they play. And so, and I, but I don't want her to get discouraged. I keep working with her. And this is not a charity project either, although that would be okay too. I'm working with her because I'm looking at her. I'm looking at her parents. I'm looking at her. I'm looking at her determination. I'm looking at the fact that she's putting that 25-cent effort in every single time we come out of the court, and I notice something. She sees the floor. She understands what needs to happen, even though she can't make it happen yet. And I can tell you as a coach, I can tell you that if injury doesn't get in the way and interests don't change, I would just almost guarantee you she's going to be a ball player one of these days. But you know what? It doesn't really matter if she isn't. She's still a contributor to the practices. She's a contributor to the product, if you want to call it that. She's a contributor within her means to what is going on. We have to stop thinking about trying to be all things to all people. What we have to start thinking about in this area is being something to some people. As the church, we can be all things to all people, that by some means we might save some. But as individuals... That application won't work. We can't meet all the needs everywhere as one person, but we can be a part of something that's meeting all the needs everywhere according to God's grace in His riches and glory. And we are His means to do that, just like that little girl's doing her little part to be a part of something bigger than herself. We cannot discount the efforts of those that are making seemingly small contributions. And you should not, if you're a $5 a week person, you should not be discounting your efforts as if they don't matter. This text states in no uncertain terms that it does. As a matter of fact, the Macedonians became, as poor as they were, the inspiration for the rich Corinthians to really meet the need. Have you ever thought about that? In your poverty, you could be God's catalyst to see global needs met. Just like Jill, you matter. It matters for you, it matters for them, it matters to Christ you remember that Christ took a little boy's offering and multiplied it to meet the needs of many with loaves and fishes? Do you remember that? That's a biblical story. Do you remember that? Did you know that in the Bible that the apostles frowned on the large offering of Ananias and Sapphira because they lacked genuineness in what they had said that they have given? Did you know that? Did you remember in the Bible how the Lord praised the widow who gave just a couple of coins because that's what she had? When we give our smaller amount, did you know that that is the point? It's not whether you can compete with Wall Street. God owns the golden streets, and He wants to see you excel. He wants you to be a part of the grace of giving. Just to state it plainly, don't let all the other members have all the grace of giving. Be a part. Be a part. Be a part of the, the project that God is moving along in the advancement of the gospel, operate in His grace and by His grace and for His grace. We've seen here through verse 11 our examples from outside the church and from within the church. Let's look very briefly at ourselves. Let's look at this grace for ourselves and this genuineness in ourselves before we conclude. You must decide based on biblical precept, based on your own means, what your level of giving is to be. Not under compulsion, but out of grace and cheerfulness and joy. Because God is the supplier. He owns it all. And just as I told you earlier, 
Abraham returned a tenth part. That was his model. David knew God owned it all. And so we operate with the saints of old as we return a portion of what we have been given to help others by giving. It's interesting, as I'm quoting biblical theology to try to get you to determine where you're supposed to be, what level that you're supposed to give. It's interesting that in our last verses that the Apostle Paul actually quotes Moses. That's what he does. Look at verse number 15, 2 Corinthians 8, 15. And it is written, and where is it written? It's in Exodus 16, 18. It's the verses that Pastor Kurt read during the, the song, between the songs earlier in the service. And he quoted the story in the Exodus about manna and quail, and that's what he's referencing here in verse 15. It says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, if you just read that on a one-off, you're like, I don't know what in the world that's talking about. I mean, you gathered a bunch, you, you didn't have extra, and you gathered little, and you had enough. I have no idea what that's about. You have to track that reference back to Exodus and know what was going on. So let me just give you just a brief synopsis of what was going on in the Exodus. God had delivered his people from Egyptian slavery. Now hang with me for this. And they, they left. Remember they crossed the Red Sea, miracles, fireworks. And then they sang songs. And they didn't even finish the song, at least in the order of Exodus, from 15 to 16, until God's people were doing what were they already doing. They're already complaining because they didn't have enough stuff. They're already mumbling. They're already grumbling. They had I mean, the ink wasn't even dry on the Exodus, if you want to think of it that way, until they're already upset because they don't have as good a food, they thought, to eat as what they had back in Egypt. And they were almost ready to give up their salvation physically from the Egyptians in order to go back and have meat, have the food that they had. They didn't really have that much of it. I mean, they were forced to build bricks without, make bricks without straw and stuff. I mean, they were treated horribly. But they were remembering the good points only about Egypt. And they're having to be encouraged as God's people not to grumble about what they don't have, but to be thankful for what they do have and to look to God for what they need. And so Exodus 16 is the story of that. And what God did as Moses intervened on behalf of the people is God actually gave them this day their daily, you know how you pray? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass. That's about the Exodus. He gave them their daily bread. Literally, supernaturally, in that epoch, manna fell from the sky. And they had bread to eat. And they had quail by night. And, and, but but it, the only time you could keep it for two days and it wouldn't spoil, supernaturally, was for the Sabbath because he didn't want them gathering on the Sabbath. And so if we think of the Lord's Day sort of that way, there was a, kind of a break there where they would have enough for two days, but, but not for otherwise just day by day is all that they had. Otherwise, it would spoil. And so the context of all this is the complaining people of God had their needs met in spite of themselves by a God who was moving through Moses as a mediator to mediate to them the story of grace, having their physical needs met supernaturally by God through manna and quail through their daily bread. And so in light of that, listen to how the Apostle Paul cites that story here in the Corinthian context of the grace of giving. He says to them, it's written in the Bible, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see, the Hebrews here, our model, not for having material blessings met only, but also for having spiritual blessings and needs met. 
there is a kind of fairness and an equality with the main needs of our lives being met that we are supposed to imitate as the body of Christ. In, he's saying here, in the similar way that God met the basic material needs of the Hebrew people when they exodus. And we are to learn to do it downstream and after we've repented of our grumbling and our complaining. We're to learn to receive from God that which He has already given us. The means by which we, we see those who have so much just having enough, and those who have so little, having no lack. The the means by which that grace is administered in the new covenant context, in the body of Christ, is one another. It's us. The means by which every member, every believer in the church is to go with food, with clothing, with shelter, is us. We are the means. It's, It's our generosity. It's our act of giving. It's our Christ-likeness. It means we have to understand one another. We have to know a little bit about one another's situation. It means some of you are going to have to humble yourself and receive some help. It means some of you are going to have to humble yourself and give more help. But that's the application of a text like this. Whoever's gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. It says in verse 12 and following, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What he has, not what he doesn't have. Don't, 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 you can compare yourself in your motivations, but don't compare yourselves in your income. It's not the same one to another. Verse 13, For I don't mean that others should be eased and then you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, material, spiritual blessings, that there may be fairness, that there may be equality. Not absolute equality, the Corinthians didn't have to subsidize the Macedonians who had a lower standard of living. At least it's not commanded here. But the Corinthians were to subsidize the standard of living for the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians that were hungry. And so there's a way of looking at this that opens up our eyes and opens up our pocketbooks and gives us an indicator of our own hearts. And we're going to see as we go through this little mini-series that indeed it is much more blessed to give than to receive. That's what Jesus modeled and that's what Jesus said. That's what it means for us. Let your heart today be opened to correction and affection and joy from God by His Word, even in the area that you formerly thought was taboo. For it is joy to know the condition of your heart and have God acting in it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us as your people to have our hearts turned towards spiritual things in every aspect of grace, in every aspect of grace, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in love for one another, in all earnestness, and even to excel in this act of grace also, of giving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to meditate on the text of Scripture this morning, I invite our ushers to come to collect our offerings and our tithes.